This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, would you say that your knowledge of zoology is somewhat lacking? Are you in the same category, perhaps, as this man? I have a problem. It's to do with a little man, the squashed-in Frenchman. The naked little squashed-up hairy boy. You know, with a hand feet. The brown little hand foot man. The gorilla. Yeah. Wait, say that again. Gorilla. Unfortunately, in that clip from the British TV comedy The Mighty Boosh, the guy who doesn't know the official name of the hand foot man is a zookeeper. But as for the actual scientists of New York's Wildlife Conservation Society, knowing that a gorilla is not a person is just one aspect of their mission. In addition to running the world's largest system of urban wildlife parks, that includes the Bronx Zoo, the New York Aquarium, the Central Park Zoo, the Queen's Zoo, and the Prospect Park Zoo in Brooklyn, they are working through educational programs to make conservation a major part of the science that kids learn today. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about one program, a collaboration between Fordham University and the Bronx Zoo, that is aiming to teach future teachers how to do just that. A little later on the show, we'll hear about how efforts to fight global warming are being made cute and cuddly. And we'll hear about another educational program, one that's looking to change the educational outlook of another group, the incarcerated. But first, Vincent Alfonso is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Fordham's Graduate School of Education. He joined me recently in our studios to talk about a program that he says is going to be something unique. Vincent Alfonso, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here again. So tell me about the program with the Bronx Zoo. Absolutely. I guess about uh, a little more than a year ago, the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University and the Wild Conservation Society, a.k.a. the Bronx Zoo, uh, decided to team up for a program that would prepare teachers to teach our children conservation biology. With the Bronx Zoo basically in our backyard, uh, we thought that it would be a great idea to try and involve the zoo in uh, putting together a, a program of study that would prepare teachers not only in how to teach science education to children, but also in state-of-the-art, groundbreaking science. In other words, uh, what's going on in the content of science. And this program is basically an equal split. In other words, uh, 50% would be um, uh, involved the zoo and 50% the Graduate School of Education, including credits and field experience and uh, coursework, et cetera. And our students would actually be taking some classes and their field experience at the zoo. That definitely would be you know, one of its kind, certainly, um, in the country. And then the other 50% of their time would be spent uh, with us at the Graduate School of Education, uh, learning the pedagogy of science ed, in other words, how to uh, teach students science and they would also have their field experiences in schools as well. So you said that uh, that students in this program are going to be learning not just about the education, but also about the science. And that makes me wonder, is that is there usually a disconnect there? Do science Absolutely. teachers not usually know the latest science? Well, there's always a sort of a debate, I, I guess, in, in the field of, of education, and that is, okay, um, how do you teach teachers to teach children, which is teacher education, um, and then also, but what about the content? So uh, it's it's very difficult to do both at the same time. And this program 
will actually be built upon doing both. In other words, that we will be able to give our students uh, the cutting-edge knowledge that the zoo can provide uh, through its education department and then also um, what we do best, which is prepare teachers to go into the classrooms and teach our kids. This program really uh, melds the two or merges the two together and um, really has the potential to respond to the critics uh, around the country about teacher preparation, teacher education, and also um, what we're teaching our kids in schools uh, when it comes to science and also math, but obviously this program is uh, specifies um, science. Why is this education of science teacher something that's specifically needed right now? There is... Uh, to be quite blunt, there is a shortage of teachers in certainly in this region. Um, the New York State Education Department, the New York City Department of Education have uh, many scholarship programs to draw potential teachers, in other words, to draw people in to become teachers of science and math. I'm not quite sure I can explain why that is the case, but it certainly is, is the case. Uh, if you have been prepared to be a teacher of science or a teacher of math, I can guarantee you will have absolutely no problem finding a job. And in fact, um, you will probably be able to pick where you want to work. There is such a shortage of teachers out there in the New York area. And then with New York City, 1.1 million students in the DOE, plus, of course, all of the other children in the other counties, is just a very, very, very big need for science um, educators. So who do you anticipate your students will be, and what exactly will they be doing in this program? The goal, I think, is eventually is to be um, an internationally known program in conservation biology that links a, um, a longstanding New York City Graduate School of Education with probably the best known uh, zoo um, in the world. So we'll get students from around the area. It will not be easy you know, to be a student in the program, we will have, uh, you know, very high standards and criteria that they have to meet. They will have coursework that will involve, again, the content of science. It will have, they'll have coursework on how to teach students, but then they'll also have the field component where they're actually working with zoo personnel um, and zoo teachers, uh, if you will, uh, at the zoo. Um, I kind of, when I read about this, I kind of envisioned it as being sort of a higher education version of 4-H or something. Is that correct or is that not so? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, you know, it's it. in all honesty, it does remain to be seen um, what this is going to look like. Are the students going to be doing things with the animals? I hope so. <laughs> I hope that they will be... Um, I know that they will be on site at the zoo. I am positive that they will be involved with um, the people who work directly with the animals, certainly with the people, the, the teachers um, at the zoo and what they do uh, with respect to the animals. But it's not just about animals. It's about conservation, conservation science. It's about environmental protection. It's learning about the ecosystem and all kinds of other things that, you know, you and I probably heard about uh, when we were in high school that have, you know, are much more advanced at, at this point in time. So they will probably be exposed to the different labs and resources at the zoo and may have some direct, uh, you know, contact or interaction with the animals. But I think it goes much 
beyond that, um, I think that it's going to be a much broader scope that they'll be uh, involved in. Why is this program something that people should care about? Well, you know, if we do, if, if as a society we care about education and science is a major part of education, especially in today's world with so many issues, concerns, uh, problems about the environment and global warming and especially, um, you know, young folks who have young kids who are going to be growing up in this society, this program, I think, will provide a lot of people with, again, that cutting edge education about, you know, what's going on in our in our environment, and um, they'll be able to educate others. Is there anything else that you'd want to add? I think uh, about the zoo program, just that, you know, stay tuned. It's really less than a year away. You know, you'll be hearing a lot more about it, and our long-term planning is that if this program is successful, that perhaps there'll be other programs with the zoo, um, there may be a program, perhaps, uh, I don't know, but with um, maybe the botanical gardens, with other resources. Um, the bottom line is that it's not just about reading, writing, and math anymore. Uh, in other words, teaching our, preparing teachers to teach reading, writing, and, and math in a vacuum. We really have to be engaged in outreach with these major resources and community resources and agencies so that we can provide the best education for our students who are then going to teach, you know, our young children. So there really is a long-term goal here. It's not just simply putting this program on the map and, oh, gee, that's, that's, just, that's a great program, but, but rather the beginning of future partnerships with major uh, community resources. Well, Vinny Alfonso, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much, Nora. It's always a pleasure. That program is expected to start up next year, and in the meantime, you can find more information about the Wildlife Conservation Society at wcs.org. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, most people would agree that teaching conservation biology is pretty important these days. But what about selling conservation biology? From producer Nathaniel Johnson, this story about how polar bears became a fuzzy poster animal for global climate change. That is a polar bear. It's about four feet away, and from this range, there's nothing abstract about it. There's just claws and fur and teeth. I'll come back to this very real bear in a moment, but first I'd like to take a step back. Okay, maybe a few steps back. Maybe I'll just close this gate. From this distance, the polar bear stops being a pure physical threat and becomes something iconic. It used to be that when people thought of polar bears, they also thought of ice and snow. But now, people are starting to associate polar bears with something completely different, heat records and melting glaciers. We've certainly had a great deal of interest in the the polar bear link with global warming. Annie Strickler works for the Sierra Club, and she says that in this last year, more and more people have been calling to ask about climate change and polar bears. How polar bears will be impacted by melting 
glaciers and melting ice is very real. It's something that you can pretty much imagine and envision and actually, frankly, see happening right now. And so it's something that's very easy for people to understand that as this white ice melts, this great white bear could be in serious trouble. And so, you know, people have definitely reacted very strongly to that. Uh, you know, this is their avenue for getting more interested in and, and concerned about global warming. Here's the problem. Many polar bears survive by swimming out to the ice flows and eating the seals there. But now the ice is thinner and farther from shore. Scientists have found polar bears that have drowned after swimming 60 miles from shore in search of ice. Now that's a sad story, but global warming generates plenty of other sad stories. What is it about polar bears that makes the phones ring at the Sierra Club? A polar bear is the ideal spokes animal, even though probably in real life they're probably pretty violent animals. Um, from far away, their fuzziness and huge paw pads and um, adorable small eyes make them an ideal animal to relate to. Meg Frost runs the website cuteoverload.com, where she mines the Internet for the cutest possible pictures. She's even developed rules of cuteness. Polar bears succeed at Rule 18, have a teeny tiny tail, Rule 16, small ear-to-head ratio, and Rule number 10, if you haven't grown into your feet yet, it's cute. I asked her, as an arbiter of all things cute, to take a look at a few pictures of polar bears. Another rule of cuteness is um, having eyes at the same level of your ears is cute. (laughs) And here's a picture of uh, uh, this this polar bear with... uh, beady eyes and tiny ears around the same level on his head. Then there's a picture of the bear you heard roaring earlier. (laughs) This is perfect. This is perfect. There's something showing your vulnerability by just lying out and just, you know, spread eagle legs. Be vulnerable. That's rule number two. There's just an instant human reaction to, to an animal that can't really help itself. Regardless of race, age, you know, background, people relate to animals on a very passionate level. There is something about animals that people just connect with directly. A lot more directly than people can connect with an abstract concept, like climate change. But as Frost says, it's one thing to see a picture and quite another to meet a bear in person. Which brings us back here to the bear tunnel at the back of the San Francisco Zoo. Animal keeper Deb Cano is feeding the three polar bears. They each stand at their window, just on the other side of the grate. Pika decided to give up horse meat about three years ago. She doesn't want to touch the stuff, so she prefers this canned food prescription diet. She unwraps the meat and gingerly tosses it through the bars, making sure not to get too close. And Andy likes the ground horse meat, canine diet, but won't touch the straight muscle meat hunk that I gave Ulu. They all have their own personalities, and they get what they want. It's Kano's job to figure those personalities out. She knows that Andy, for instance, is mad for pears. She was chewing something red. She kept rubbing it along the bars but not giving it to me. So I went and got a pear, and I stood there with the pear, and she had the thing in her mouth, and 
She was just kind of holding it, and the next thing I did was there was a maintenance man working here, and I said, let's just go lean up against the wall here. And um, I bit into the pear, and she spit the plastic object right through the bars towards me, and it was um, a small finger puppet. So I gave her a new pear, and so they're smart. Kano thinks of the bears as intelligent, majestic, powerful, but not exactly cute. They're unbelievable animals, and never do they let me assume that they're not a perfect killing machine. So there's a lot of respect there that you just have to constantly give. There's no loyalty just because I feed them for, you know, 11-some-odd years. There's no loyalty. They bite the hand that feeds them. So it's all about eating, and that's why um, they're going to have some issues with global warming. Seals are not going to have a place to haul out, and polars are just going to have to change what's on the menu. And in the short term, polar bears may be able to change what's on the menu. As temperatures rise, some bears are drowning, but others are thriving in the mild winters. In the long term, most scientists agree that if the ice disappears, so will the polar bears. But Annie Strickler at the Sierra Club says there's still time to make changes. We are at a point right now uh, where a majority of Americans are aware of global warming, they're concerned about it, and they want to know what they can do to help. And, you know, if we take action today and in the next few years, we really can reverse this course and save iconic creatures like the polar bear. And there's something about sinking at sea that captures the public imagination. When the Titanic went down, it spurred a Senate investigation, policy changes, and a revolution in ship design. The sunken Lusitania and Arizona became icons that helped push the U.S. into the First and Second World Wars. There are certainly things besides polar bears that make people think about global warming. Glaciers are receding, hurricanes are bigger, there was a heat wave this summer. But none of those facts can be summed up by a simple picture. If the culmination of these events really do create a demand for change, historians may well remember polar bears as the Lusitania of global warming. Polar bear myth and reality from producer Nathaniel Johnson. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on Cityscape a panel discussion on progress in Lower Manhattan six years after the September 11th attacks. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, Fordham professor Mark Chapman has been engaging in his own educational project for about the last 10 years. That's how long Chapman, who is also an ordained United Church of Christ minister, has been an instructor in an academic program for the inmates at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. I spoke with Chapman about his work on the black prison experience. He's currently working on a book on the subject and about his work teaching at Sing Sing. I teach in a master's program that was developed in 1982. It is the first of its kind and the only master's program still running in New York State. And the men who participate in the program receive a master's degree after the completion of 40-plus credits. And it is a very rigorous academic program. And at the end of the year, they have a graduation ceremony there at the prison, which is always a great occasion. What kind of courses do they take? They take courses in foundations in ministry. They take courses in theology. I teach that course, Introduction to Systematic Theology. They take courses in Introduction to Religious Studies. They take courses on church history. Uh, They take courses on the Bible. And all of their work culminates in um, a year-long master's program 
which is, a, again, a very uh, rigorous program. We have about 400 men who apply for 15 to 16 slots. So we were able to select the cream of the crop, very well-educated men who have gotten their college degrees while they are in prison. Of course, in 1995, when Congress passed the Prison Reform Act, the prison, it's not the name of the act, but the, the federal prison bill was passed in 1995. The U.S. Congress passed it, and it eliminated all of the Pell Grants to prisoners that had enabled men to, and, and women to get their college degrees while they were in prison. With the elimination of that, of that college programs in the prison, many of the universities left, and then, of course, it fell upon individual citizens of goodwill to raise the money to continue college programs. Now, just now when you said that, I actually was surprised to learn that there had been college programs mm -hmm. in prisons. Can you talk about that and also just describe a little bit more the impact that the passing of that law had? Right. It began in, as in the aftermath of the Attica riots in 1971, September 1971. There was a riot at Attica Prison, which is in, located in upstate New York. And one of the outcomes of that was the call for more rehabilitative programs in the prisons in New York State. And as a result of that, Mercy College, beginning in 1973, became the first college to offer a college program there at Greenhaven Prison, which is in Poughkeepsie, New York. And so that program began, and after that, several other universities throughout the state began to offer similar programs. They were able to get federal monies from the government to offer these programs as prisoners were able to get federal grants to pursue their education. The college programs then were running throughout New York State and, of course, across the country from the 1970s well into the 1990s, the mid-1990s, until the law was changed. The impact of that has been quite, uh, uh, quite negative. We see a dearth of rehabilitative programs and activities for men to pursue. And so most of the men in prison, without the college programs running, have to find other ways to fill their time through recreation, weightlifting, basketball. Uh, those types of activities fills the day, but it does not give the men and women who are incarcerated the kind of skills, life skills, that are going to enable them to have a successful reentry into society upon their release. So it has been a devastating thing and a very unfortunate policy decision on the part of the Congress. So when, when men in prison do receive higher education, what are some of the differences and what happens when they get out? There have been national studies that have proven that those men uh, who, and women who receive college education in prison are much less likely to recidivate, to return to prison. Uh, even in the face of this proof, the Congress still decided to eliminate the college programs. At Sing Sing, the Hudson Link, which is a nonprofit organization, people of goodwill, citizens who raised the money, they've done a wonderful job and uh, at least enabling those men who are at Sing Sing to pursue their college studies. Of course, there are over 60 prisons in New York State, and 
men who are in the other 61 prisons would have to be lucky enough to get a transfer to Sing Sing in order to pursue a college education. And even at Sing Sing, there's a long waiting list for men who are attempting to get into that program, men who have gotten their GED and are now awaiting an open slot in the college program. Now, in your own academic research, you draw historical lines between the slavery era in the U.S. and the experiences of black prisoners today in the form of a system called convict leasing that developed just around the time of the Civil War. Tell me about that. The central question for the southern states after the Civil War was how were they going to replace four million black slaves, those who are no longer legally slaves? Who was going to do the labor that those four million black people did? And the criminal justice system was a very easy way for the South to exploit uh, black labor. This pattern developed after the Civil War and continued well into the 1930s. Now, when you examine the rate of incarceration among black people in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, and you see the ways in which black people are are exposed to the criminal justice process, you can see some very clear historical linkages to what took place after the Civil War. In this case, we understand that the prison industrial complex supplies many jobs for people in rural communities, judges, lawyers, those who supply uh, prisons, and also those who benefit from the construction of prison, construction companies, vending companies, food companies, All of these companies and others benefit from the rising rate of incarceration. Don't prisoners now also work for companies for very low wages, like uh, telemarketing, things like that? Yes, that is correct. And in state prisons, also in federal prisons, the prisoners are put to work. They serve as receptionists so that if you sometimes call an airline and book a, a flight, it may be possible that you're talking to somebody in a prison a federal prison. Office furniture, desks, cabinets, bookcases are all made by prisoners. And these, um, these, this type of, of, of labor pays, of course, very, very low wages. And many people in society are not very sympathetic to people who have committed crimes who are working. And some prisoners who are unaware of the exploitation of their labor are happy to have such jobs because it breaks up the monotony of living in prison. But the fact of the matter is is that prison labor is used in a way that makes it very difficult for people in society to compete. Very similar to what happened in post-Reconstruction South. Small companies, agricultural companies, or other types of services in the South were very opposed to convict leasing, not on moral or ethical grounds, but because they simply could not compete with the products produced by prison labor. Very similarly, there are companies, smaller companies and corporations in in local areas that simply cannot compete with the state government or with federal governments uh, who are producing uh, products, even though the state prison and the federal prisons have regulations about the types of products made by prisoners so as not to compete with local businesses, uh, the fact of the matter is this always remains a constant threat 
to uh, local uh, businesses. Now, when you teach your course, the Black Prison Experience at Fordham, you often have former prisoners come in to your classes and talk to your students. How do your students respond to them? Oh, this is always, for me, the highlight of the semester. Just recently, this past semester, a student of mine at Sing Sing who was released on parole after spending 25 years came to speak to my class within two weeks of his release. And the students were very eager to receive him, had many uh, wonderful questions, and interacted with him uh, after class. Uh, and it was very exciting to, to see that. Uh, when I first started teaching the course, I was able to take uh, students from Fordham to Sing Sing. And over a period of three years, must have taken about 100 students into Sing Sing, where the students from Fordham could meet with prisoners at the prison. And of course, for many of the students, this was the first time that they were ever in, in a maximum security prison. And that was a wonderful opportunity. We spent the day, about three hours, with the men there in the prison. And uh, that was, uh, for many of them, uh, a very eye-opening experience. I was going to ask you why you thought that the students meeting the prisoners or the former prisoners was an important thing to do. It seems like you've already answered that, but is there anything else that you'd want to say? I think it's important to, uh, to always keep in front of us the notion that an individual can make a mistake, and that mistake is not the sum, uh, the sum total of that person's character. Uh, we are uh, we are never uh, the you know the mistake that we've made in the past. We our humanity should never be reduced to that. Uh, and so, what the students came to understand is that uh, redemption, salvation, is not simply an academic or theological concept, but that it is a very real, uh, very real phenomenon. Well, Mark Chapman, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Fordham professor and African American Studies chair Mark Chapman from WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV dot org. This has been Fordham Conversations. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast, or you can listen to it online in our audio archives on our website, wfuv.org. If you have any comments or questions about the show, you can drop us an email. Our address is Fordham Conversations at wfuv.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.